Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, and we're going to have to change our intro music if Josh Shelton keeps ducking the show. I am here, as always, I am the Brett Farva Podcast, as you faithful listeners know. Today I have on a good, good friend of mine, um, a man that some of you know, some of you might not know. We have a morning off the rails we do together and don't want the facts. He also hosts Coffee and Liquidity. I'm talking about the president, the CEO, the Oracle of Midland himself, Ben Samuels. You know, always, always with the intros, Ryan, spot on. I appreciate that. I appreciate you uh, calling out to the bullpen here. Hopefully I can... Uh, Hopefully I can hold up uh, the seat here for Josh and uh, and hopefully low he's bar. back, uh, back low, to the ring tomorrow. Low bar, low bar. You've by showing up, you've already accomplished that goal. It's it's really not that hard. So congratulations um, on on beating Josh uh, by showing up. Okay, so Ben, for those of you, I don't think you've been on the show before, have you? No, sir. Okay, so maybe introduce introduce yourself um, for folks who aren't familiar with who you are. And this and all aside, Ben does a lot of stuff on the Permian, so. Go ahead and talk about your business stuff as well. Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, been out in uh, Permian, out in Midland for about seven years now. Um, focused mostly on uh, transactional A&D across the uh, energy space from equipment auctions all the way through minerals and uh, and surface and water uh, disposition and development. And then uh, own and operate a couple thousand acres of surface up in northeastern Martin County out here in the Permian um, and, and looking out at uh, building out some water programs and some and some oil field waste disposal processes as well. Um, and then, like you mentioned, I have a number of podcasts, and uh, somehow you keep me busy with the, with the media stuff. Somehow you've uh, you've you've coaxed me into uh, the the apprenticeship of the talking head. So I'm I'm uh, leaning into that a little bit, and that's uh, mm-hmm. that's been good as well. Although, uh, like we've talked a little bit off air, uh, that that writing, I mean that that's a tough cookie to crack. That is a tough cookie. I sat down last night. Um, to write a piece about the response to the, the the portal from hell in the Gulf of Mexico. And I got like three words in. I was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> just, just done. Just done. Uh, I have some thoughts on that. I, I will probably expound either a written piece or at War Media's uh, YouTube channel. But before we go any further, we do have a review. And on this podcast, we only accept five-star reviews. Um, and, and once again, we got a five-star review. It works out quite nicely. This is from Northerner in the South. The headline is average. As far as average podcasts go, this one is very average and therefore best in class. Let me tell you something. We've gotten a lot of five-star reviews, like 300 and something of them. That might be the most accurate one to date. So thank you for that, uh, Northerner in the South. We appreciate it. Josh would appreciate it if he's here. Of course, we all know he shows up like once a year. So if I'm the Brett Favre, real quick before we get in the show, who is Josh? Who's the guy who doesn't show up very often? Uh, that's a good question. Is he like... I don't know. Yeah, he's like... Um, who's always getting hurt? Um, I think about that because he, he is the guy who literally is always, always getting hurt. I would say like a Bo Jackson, but he's not that good. Um, so yeah, no, cause I was going to go with Griffey and then like, yeah, yeah but same again, comment, he, you got to kind of like, right. Yeah. Be good. Um, yeah. Um, he's like, wait, okay. What? Okay. Here, here's the 50 most hurt athletes of all time. Um, we have Greg Oden. And, and so Greg Oden, 
there's a lot of hype, but you never actually achieve anything. So that you have you, that. You know, for, uh, for those of you that were fans of the Killer Bees growing up in the '90s, the Houston mm-hmm. Astros, Derek mm-hmm. Bell, he was on one year and then terrible another year. I mean, he hit 210 and just couldn't hit the broadside of a barn one year, and the next year he he, had, he puts together an all-star performance. I mean, maybe something like that. Oh, 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 to, to keep baseball, JD Drew. You know, when Josh thinks we have a viable sponsor coming up or okay. a okay. big guest, he shows up, he shows out. But most of the time, he's pretty weak, uh, has a lot of off days. He's hurt a lot. Uh, as a Red Sox fan, we all can talk about that pain quite honestly. But J.D. Drew, um, he's not Grant Hill. He was never hyped to that level. Um, I think I think those are good. Okay, so let's get into the actual show, what people were here for. Ben, the timing, as you said, is lovely. Because we have a story that you are probably an expert on. You're an ex- more an expert than I am. I'm not an expert in anything, as we know. This comes to us from Spectrum Local News. I hope that is not owned by the internet company. That would be weird. Anyways, Rule 37 allows Texas oil and gas companies to, to take residents' minerals without payments. Now, that headline sounds explosive. It sounds dangerous. It sounds like pure brand communism. Ben, you're in the mineral space. What's going on here? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting issue. Um, like you mentioned, I have a close perspective on this um, as a, a project that I worked earlier in my career. I was working for uh, Arrington Oil and Gas, who was responsible for drilling up the uh, the city of Midland, and so I was intimately familiar with this process. What Rule Thirty Seven says, you know, Ryan, you're exactly right. It gives the oil and gas company right to drill the minerals in a certain unit. Given some parameters, and then the parameters are important, but given some parameters without the consent of everyone in the unit. And so here's here's what this looks like in practice. And so, Ryan, if you own because we have folks from upstream, midstream, downstream, maybe break down what a, okay. what a unit is just to for those okay. uh, intimately familiar with the mineral space. Absolutely. So, Ryan, let's say that you're a ranch owner and you own we're going to make the the math easy for this example. You own 1,280 acres of surface and minerals on your ranch and XTO comes to you and says, Hey, we want to drill some wells. Here's the lease proposal. Here's uh, what, what, you know, what we can pay you. Here's the contract. You go get it reviewed by an attorney and you make the decision whether to sign or not. There's some negotiation and then you either make the decision to go forward or not. Right. You, that's, that's your decision. You have full right to do that. You own everything within the surface and the minerals there, there's no other parties involved. Now, in the city of Midland or the, one of these other cities, um, you know, generally your home, you know, I don't know what it's like out in Granbury. I think they're much probably much larger lots. But in, in the city of Midland, as an example, the average town site home lot in a subdivision is somewhere between 0.161 acres and about 0.25 acres. Now, in Granbury area, what, what is it out there? Is it, is it a little bit larger than that? Do you know? Yeah, well, not in Granbury proper, but when you get outside, you can see um, definitely some larger lots. So in the context, going back to, Ryan, your ranch example, the 1,280 acres, but in Midlands, um, as an example here, uh, a mineral owner will only own 0.161 acres because you own the minerals under your home. Now, let's say, Ryan, let's say that in a, and I'm just going to make the math easy. Let's say that in, in a unit of 1,280 acres, which is a, what a unit is, is an area in which an oil and gas company has the rights to drill, that if they drill and produce oil from somewhere within those boundaries, they're able to maintain the leasehold of those boundaries, within those boundaries, 
as long as the production is, is continued. Now, if let's say that in that 1,280 acres within the city, there are 2,000 mineral owners and 1,960 of them have decided that they want to drill. They're okay with drilling. They've signed a lease. They want to move forward. The oil and gas company has given them terms that they are, they are good with. They have signed their oil and gas lease. And there are 40 uh, mineral owners sort of sprinkled without or within that unit, not contiguous, not next to each other, but just sort of randomly. Now, if those 40 mineral owners do not want to sign a lease, that's their full full right to do that. They can make that decision. Again, going back to the ranch example, they can make the decision whether to sign or not. But the difference here is that there is a point at which oil and gas company reaches a critical mass of that leasehold within the unit so that the 40 mineral owners, you can make the case, should not be allowed to tell the other 1,960 that they're not able to make money from their minerals because the 40 don't want to sign a lease. Therefore, the company shouldn't be able to drill. Now, the resolution here is, to your point, the Rule 37 gives the oil and gas company the ability to, to drill if they cannot get everyone to sign a lease. But there is compensation due there. It's not purely they are, um, you know, they are without compensation. But sometimes if, if they cannot get to an agreement, they will be excluded from the unit. But the caveat here is that let's say that there was... So let's say that there was a pathway to drill that didn't go under the minerals or under the property of someone that didn't sign a lease. They would opt for that path because you can perforate, but just not under the specific location in which the lease was not signed or the mineral owner decided not to sign. Or let's say that logistically that's not possible. And so the, the drill path has to go through the minerals of an area that was not signed by a mineral owner. There's something called an NPZ which is a non-perforation zone, which again is part of rule 37, that if the mineral owner does not sign and there is no other drill path, the oil and gas company can get the authorization to continue the drill bit through that property, but they just won't perforate or frack within those boundaries. And so there's a lot more sort of context, that's a cat in the background there. There's a lot more sort of context behind this rule 37 and there's a lot more optionality than maybe that article sort of paints out or certainly that headline does. Okay, so let's just maybe unpack this a um, couple of perspectives. So one thing is in Texas, which is different than Louisiana, I'm not sure about Oklahoma, um, but in Texas, you know, mineral rights could be owned forever, basically. In Louisiana, um, it's, it's kind of harder to keep them, they revert back to the service owner if they're not being used after 10 years. But anyways, so in Texas, and to use your analogy of this, you know, inside the city limits, it's quite possible, if not maybe maybe the case that inside of a, a subdivision or a city, that the surface owners don't actually own um, the minerals, right? It's going to be a lot of people who have held on to these minerals for quite some time. Um, how, so when you're talking about this, it's, it's kind of a weird scenario. It's not like a pipeline going through where it's 1,900, you know, people and they're all surface owners. Does, does that complicate the issue does it really does it make it less complicated because you have this issue where you're like okay we got a drill but these people could live in you know kentucky you know it's fascinating so you would think that as an example going back to my uh you know the previous example of midland texas given the oil and gas presence in midland since the early 1920s you would it would seem to think or you would seem to follow that some homeowner in the past would have thought about the, reserving the mineral rights under the home. Now, I'll tell you, when I was on the acquis this acquisition project from, what, 2014 to 2017, give or take, give, I mean, those years, 
over 85, 90% of the current homeowners also own their minerals. The, the minerals had not been severed, which I found was a really interesting trend. And if you talk about maybe areas that are not as, uh, you know, that oil and gas is not as prevalent, I think that that divide would be even greater. <laughs> and so, uh, so there wasn't as much of that, um, you know, but, you know, there were, you know, I had conversations with people that, you know, that we were sitting at the kitchen table and, and they're asking me, okay, so what happens if, you know, you guys start to drill and oil is coming out of the backyard? Right. And my, my response is, you know, then you're Jed Clampett. That's a really good problem to have. <laughs> right. I mean, this is, right. um, you know, that, that doesn't sound good, but, but, you right. know, that, but, that, but we're also talking about two miles under ground and, and you know you could be and, and one of the things i used to tell people is you, know, you could be standing in the front yard looking at the ground as the drill bit was going under the property yeah. and you'd have no idea um and, and so the, you know that that was kind of an education process because again going back to in midland you, know, you think about oh you're going to drill a well and you think about that being like out in that random branch you don't think about it going under the city and so uh you know yeah there's some, some concerns there but at the end of the day the it, it it becomes a critical mass so that the project is going to move forward, whether there's an entire buy-in. And you see that, you also see that in more urban areas. It's not exclusive to, sure. you know, in, inner middle or inner city uh, units. Yeah. So on the show, we quite often talk about, you know, the, the industry has to protect the impacted owner. Um, we, 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 I don't know um, how you get around eminent domain and expropriation. Um, at the same time, I'm always reluctant to say that we should have it. It's one of those things because, if you're not careful, they just start taking everything. This is basically what's happening in this case is it's, it's an eminent domain, more or less, um, when you're pulling the units because you're, you're forcing someone. No, disagree? Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, def I definitely disagree because the key, the kicker here is that the the optionality or the restriction of that optionality is only uh, once the oil and gas company, which is a private entity, has voluntarily or has gotten enough of the mineral owners within a unit to voluntarily sign a lease so that the remaining are, are given an option. Again, they're given an option of to get paid and to remain in the unit or to be excluded. There, there is never a scenario. I mean, it doesn't exist where there's a scenario that the oil and gas company drills the mineral owners minerals under their property within a unit, even with or without rule 37, where the mineral owner has not authorized that. If the if the mineral owner doesn't authorize the drilling, they will be either, like I said before, they will be either non-perfed or or they will be excluded from the unit altogether and not drilled or um, not drilled under. And so in, in, oh, in neither okay. one of those scenarios, they're not actually being damaged. Okay, I'm interested, I'm interested at that point. Okay, so what you're saying is, is that unlike a pipeline where eventually they will build across your property, here they would not take the minerals. I mean, the, you know, the, the drill bit has the ability to go, you know, in an S, it, it can go around a property. Okay. Now you can't, you can't spot, you, you can't like snake it all the way through. You can do that sort of sparingly. And if you, you know, if you, it's just like any other kickoff point, if you kick right. off, you have to maintain that, you know, that lateral, but you can kick off around a property or, right. or a section. So let's say like a city, let's say there was a landowner that, or a mineral owner that owned a city block within a city that didn't want to be drilled around. You would be able to, to kick around that, um, and, and so they're not actually being damaged. Now I mean, you obviously have drainage, etc. But but sure. that's but again, that's just part of the. So let's talk about it from the landowner's perspective. Um, if they're sitting there, there's a block of two thousand units, um, and they're wanting to hold out, um, and they they think the price is too cheap. All these other people are suckers. The price is too cheap. They want to hold out. Would you advise them to hold out? Because um, it would seem to me that if they hold out, maybe later on. If, everyone, if, if you start drilling that it's too late, uh, they might get a worse deal. Is the deal locked in once everyone's assigned? 
Um, you know, and this is not obviously official advice for people listening. It's just general how to think about it because we do have landowners who listen to the podcast as well. And I don't know how to, you know, how to think about it if you're the landowner because I could see them going, God, the guys, the price is too low. Like I know the business you don't in a non oil and gas area, but everyone else has fell for it. And so should they hold out or not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's very much a double-edged sword. So, so what I'll tell you is in the genesis of the project that I was on when I first started, it was very much an idea. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't clear that we would get enough leasehold to make this work. It wasn't clear that we would get, get enough traction to actually be able to drill. And so because of that, we were paying, you know, very, very little in terms of bonus and royalty uh, and, and the, the terms were pretty favorable to the company. Uh, you know, so when the oil veterans were being approached by those numbers general general response from that was you know come back to me when this is real or you know this isn't enough but like let's let's circle back uh, and so then you know over the lifetime of the project when we got to a point where understood that this was going to happen but now it's about putting together unit obviously the price exponentially increased um, and so then we had a lot more traction from sort of the, the oil experts. Um, what I would tell you is if I were in a situation like that, if I had owned minerals uh, within this uh, you know, and I was being approached with that sort of conversation, I might look at opting to participate in the unit as a either non-consent royalty owner or, or try to get some, you know, something on the working interest side of the ledger. Um, you know, if, if, the other piece of this is if you know if you're talking about you're owning 0.161 or use easy math a quarter acre within a 280 acre unit that mm -hmm. means that you own what uh, nearly one five thousandth of the unit and so mm -hmm. we're talking about infinitesimal revenue right. sort of regardless and so you know if if it gets to the point where it's going you know it's going to happen I would advocate for get as large of a signing bonus as you possibly can. And then, you know, the, the, the royalties are going to be, you know, they're going to add up, but they won't, they're not going to, you know, they're, they're going to maybe pay the boat payment. They certainly won't pay for the boat. Okay. One other, <laughs> one other question real quick on the royalty stuff in general. I don't know if I've ever asked you this offline. Um, so I'll ask you online because that's always appropriate. Um, is there a certain size of a uh, mineral hold, uh, acreage hold, uh, holding position that you should have? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase it. At what size of, uh, you know, if you have, is it 10 acres, 20 acres, 1,000 acres um, of minerals, when you hold that, should you consider hiring out a landman to represent you? Because to your point, if you have a very, very fractional percentage, you know, is that you're probably going to lose money by bringing somebody in. At what point is there kind of a threshold you go, is it 10 acres, 100 acres, 1,000 acres, where you need to bring in a professional to represent you? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's as much as, you know, of an acreage count as a, uh, as much as it is, you know, what's the activity like in, in sort of what's what does that fractional ownership look like? And, and so you know, if you own a number of small interests, but they happen to be in a number of different places where you are getting offer letters and, and, and lease offers left and right mm. continuously. And, and it's it's a it's enough of a volume that you need someone to, you know to support that. I, I would look at hiring someone out, and that might be more on a contract basis. On the other side of the coin, um, simply if, you know if there's enough revenue being generated from the minerals that it would justify hiring someone to to manage those. Because I think one of the things that that is sort of lost in translation with a landman managing minerals, a lot of times that that's sort of looked at as like a sunk cost or just sort of a you know a, a loss leader on the ledger. Whereas what the landman is you know, if they're doing their job correctly in that scenario is they are actively in conversation with the operators around you, making sure that they're on top of current terms, current operations, 
current landscape, et cetera, to be able to advise whether you know maybe you're in a situation to add minerals to your portfolio if it makes sense, or maybe it's the, the right time to sell minerals. You know, there, there's sort of been this ethos for a long time, I think, in the, the mineral owner world that you know never sell your minerals. And, and I, you know, we can talk about that or not, but I, I'm I'm very much on the other side of that coin. I think there's lots of reasons and lots of times that you should. And so I think a mineral manager or a landman in that scenario is, is much more of managing the asset and trying to grow as opposed to just sitting there and, and sort of being more passive. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's helpful. Okay, let's move on to a couple of things before we have on our guest, Mark Rosano. Um, you're out in Midland, as you mentioned. Texas. This is from uh, the Center Square. Texas upstream oil and gas sector continues to add jobs. This has been something we talked about on the show a couple of times now. It doesn't feel, despite the price being, I haven't looked at this morning, um, I just saw OPEC just cancel their meeting, so I'm curious what Mark has to say. Um, it doesn't feel like the industry's back at $70 oil, where it's uh, 75 right now, WTI. It doesn't feel that way, at least following the news and what's happening. Uh, in Midland, does it feel like we're at $75 oil, or does it feel like we're still working to get there? Because we're, we're getting jobs back. Um, you know, The rig count's kind of floundering around. Um, what's your read on it? Yeah, you know, out in Midland, it, it's... Uh... The engine's revving out here, absolutely. I mean, th- things are blowing and going. Uh, you know, the, the rig yards are, are a lot more sparse, than, you know, a lot more sparse than they've been in, in any of the recent months. Uh, you know, all indicators are, are that uh, you know people are getting out to work. You, you see uh, pipeline crews everywhere, wireline crews. I mean, it, it's it's a good sight when you drive around. You know, it, for a while it was uh, it was pretty quiet out here, and it, uh, there, there was a lot of hurt. But uh, but no, as of recent, there, there's there's a, there's a lot a lot of positive things going on out here. Yeah, so I talked to a couple of vendors, and they were saying that you know that they're they're really struggling because despite the and that, that maybe where they're positioned at, but this, despite the the price going up, that there's there's just not enough work to really kind of get them going again. So I'm um, interested to hear that you, you kind of your vibe is that that things are really good. I think you you know on that Ryan, I think I consider the source, and what I mean by that is, you know is that the the firms that have too much fluff on the balance sheet and are not running uh, you know, efficiently, they're, they're never going to make money in the oil and gas business, whether it's 75 or 100 or 40, or you know, it, it doesn't matter. But, but I think that you know, in the last 15 months, the firms that took that opportunity to streamline operations, become more efficient, become more effective, um, I, I think there are a lot of groups that are making a lot of money but but yeah, you know if, if you're if the incentives are misaligned or, or if you're sort of you know SOP and you just sort of took 2020 as a gap year and you're trying to rev the engine back as you know just like you ran it in 2017 2018, I, you know I think that we've seen that recipe fail miserably time and time again. And, and, and you know anyone that's trying to go back to that is going to see that same experiment. Well, the real question I think the indicator is is Shack in the back back to full pre pandemic levels. Shack in the back is bustling like it's never bustled before. Really? That place, that place is like a is a, a paradise oasis in the desert. They've turned that thing around. It's green. It you for, I don't. It doesn't even look like it's in Midland. But no, for those that had not been there out there, check it out. It's uh, it's something else. They uh, I think they took some stimmy money and, and put it to good use. And you're out there doing your thing. What three four times a week? Shack in the back. I've been out here for seven times, or for uh, I've been out in Midland for seven years full time. I've been to Shack in the Back, I think, four times total. Um, so I'll let my record speak for myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, four times a week. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, okay. Let's see here. I think one more story before Mr. Rosano hops on. 
Uh, X, this is from uh, June 30th, so just a few days ago. Chevron to sell a swath of Permian assets valued at more than $1 billion. Um, you know, on this show, we have made a, a, a point thinking that for years um, now that the consolidation to the majors would happen. Now with ESG and, and kind of the pressure that you're seeing, it maybe, we, maybe we're going to be wrong on that and it's going to be a, a decentralized Permian Basin if, if the majors start selling off assets. Um, what's kind of your read on this, Ben? Do you think that the majors are going to stay out in the Permian or are we going to start to see this slow, steady sell-off? Is this more virtue signaling um, or is it a real, 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 uh, real concern? You know, I think it's interesting. You know, I think that there's sort of a conversation around. So on one side, if you're, you know, to your point um, earlier, I believe last week uh, you had a guest on uh, David, you know, David Blackman um, that was talking. And actually that might've been on inside the war room now that I'm talking, I'm speaking about that. Um, but he was talking about 150, $200 oil. You know, if you believe that thesis, or if you believe anywhere sort of near that upside trajectory, I think there's a strong argument to go out, you know, as a, as an investor or a, as a principal on one side of the ledger or, or other, you'll go out and buy production, go out and buy leasehold, go out, go out and begin operations because if you can become operational in this environment and, and we're gonna see that sort of ramp up, I mean, you're, you're, you're just sort of printing money. Um, I think on the other side of the ledger, you know, the, uh, the chevrons of the world have the ability and have the, the seat so that they can you know, decide temporarily or or permanently, but temporarily to leave you know the more sort of hotbed issue in terms on the geopolitical side in the Permian and go offshore because you know Chevron has made a number of announcements in the last six months about some major offshore opportunities and exploration uh, you know, discoveries and so you know are they just simply going to be going back to just like what happened in the 80s. Are they going to go back to focusing on the offshore and international portfolio and wait for the domestic market here in the US to, to calm down or to sort of realign and, and be more inviting for, for that, you know, for that development? That, I mean, so and I think you're... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Last thing I was going to say, I think and I think you saw the same thing with Shell. I mean, Shell's been talking about the same thing. And, and, you're, and I think you've seen a number of the majors sort of, you know, kind of uh, pointed the same, the same issue. So if you have the majors on some level moving out, um, we've heard about the struggle to get funds to these, um, these operators in West Texas, especially, um, you know, how does that play itself out? Because the majors, the publicly traded companies, their ability to raise capital um, is a little bit different than the property hill companies. And I know, I know there's a big debate over, which is actually a better, a better avenue. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have a strong opinion on um, who might be able to raise capital in the future better than the old guest space, a privately held company or a publicly held company? I'll answer it. I don't know if this is an answer to your question, Ryan, but the companies that are going to be able to raise money in the future and drum roll, please. And this says, this is irrespective of private or public, but it's the ones that are focused on driving profit to the company, not, adding acreage to the balance or adding acreage to, to the pitch deck or adding you know, the, these other metrics. It's going to be about the companies that are running efficient operations that are driving profit to the bottom line and aren't paying their C-suites ridiculous numbers when the, when, when the production is garbage. If you see that alignment, you'll, you'll, you'll get better answers to what you're talking about. If and, you'll, so and you'll have a lot more liquidity available in the market. Well, if someone wants to pay me a, a you know crazy amount to be on the balance sheet, then I'll take that. Okay, let's see here. We have our guest on now. Let's see. Let me get him on up here on the big screen. Well, how about this trifecta deal? This is kind of wigging me out. Here we go. The I man like it. himself. 
Mark, how's everything going? Good, Mark. How you doing? Good. Happy Fourth. Yes, very much so. Now you've been on Inside the War Room a few times, but your first time on Text One Guest Podcast. So maybe a quick introduction of who you are and why people call you the Wizard. <laughs> so, so I run a uh, consulting company and a private equity firm where we invest in energy infrastructure and on the uh, consulting side do macroeconomics, uh, energy, you know, pretty much across the board. And that is, we also launched a YouTube channel where we discuss macroeconomics, geopolitics, and energy pretty much across the board uh, three days a week. And then on the primary vision side, we have the U.S. frac spread count where we look at all of the activity in the lower 48. Yep. And the frac spread is part of the reason we want to get you on. We'll talk about the OPEC and the international stuff as well. But let's start with the frac spread count. Um, where are, where, for, for, okay, for, what does that actually mean for people who are new to the term? Um, sure. You see it everywhere now, but what does it mean? Where are we at as far as um, you know, a year ago? And then where are we at compared to where you thought we might be from a year ago? Sure. So the frac spread count is the, so when you drill a well, the well will sit there until the frac spread uh, crew comes up. And a spread is just the horsepower that comes in to actually fracture the well and bring it on to production. So we're much closer to the actual production number in the US with about a 90 to 92% correlation over the course of 30 to 60 days. So our expectation coming into the year was that we were gonna hit about 250 spreads. And we've actually taken that a bit higher to peaking at about 275. So each spread is just one crew that comes up and will complete one or two wells at a time, depending on the type of technology that's being used on a Samuel frack or just a regular uh, frack job. So we, we actually took that higher. Uh, we, we uh, as of like, I think what 2020 was, was we were still in key chaos at about 115 spreads. And right now we're at, at about 234. So our view is that we're going to get to about 275 by the time we get to the end of July, beginning of August. And the other side of the equation that we have to talk about, because everyone looks at this and says, well, you know, we were at 445 at any given time. And the problem is right now we have uh, a lot of oil spreads. So gas is being ignored. The focus is oil, uh, obviously the Permian. We're actually over the Permian. When you look at 2017 versus 2021, the Permian has 123 active spreads. Uh, moving throughout. And the whole focus when we came into 2021 on our view was that they were going to they were going to bring back uh, crews quickly, try to stem the tide because we saw those declines from 13.2 to about, you know, let's call it 10.8 and was to kind of walk themselves back up before they started focusing on drilling uh, wells again, bringing rigs back. So we thought it was going to be very heavy to the frac spread side. And then as we got into Q3, rigs were going to start to increase and crews were going to keep continue to increase, but just not at the same pace, because right now we're at this nice running room to uh, have give us an exit ratio of about 11.5 to 11.7 million barrels a day. Okay. So we were talking before about the price. Um, I think right now it's at uh, 75. Uh I know we had you on Inside the War Room a few weeks ago. Maybe quickly summarize your thesis on the price um, for those who aren't familiar with it. Sure. So on the price side, you know, when we're doing our, our analysis for clients on the EIA show, we look at the whole um, 
we look at energy as one, you know, essentially flat line. We look at it on the full supply chain and what we call well to wheel. So we're looking at this from oil, hydrocarbons out of the ground into the OFS midstream. And then we're looking at refiners and users, whether it's refiners, pet chem, because we want to look at where is there, where is there oversupply, where is there shortage. So right now, everybody loves to talk about oil draws and oil going down, but then they ignore the fact that jet fuel and gasoline, if we take out 2020, is at all time highs. We keep having refined products building in Singapore, uh, you know, ARA, when you look at Europe, then when you look at Fujara, and there's almost 8 million barrels of DISTI that just can't, or I should say distillate or diesel, uh, that can't find a home. So when we look at this, we're looking at it not just from the oil side, but also from the refined product side. So our view is that there is a remaining oversupply in the market. When you look at oil, we it's the summer, we normally draw down, but we also typically draw down refined products and we're just not seeing that in the same way, which gives us a pause. The US dollar, because everybody loves to talk about the US dollar when it was going down and why you bought oil. Well, now oil and uh, and the US dollar actually have a positive correlation. So that that you know thesis is thrown out the window. And obviously we have our favorite, the OPEC meeting to uh, to cause some chaos. Okay, one more question. I want Ben to hop in here. I just want to set the table for the kind of topic uh, talking points. Um, is OPEC? OPEC, I guess they saw that we had the podcast, so they decided not to break news while we were, while we were recording, and they have indefinitely suspended OPEC meetings. Uh, first off, break down what happened over the past few days, and what do we make of this news of this suspension of meetings without um, without a date to be uh, to, to continue talks? Sure. So when we look at OPEC, you have to each each entity within OPEC has their own reasons to be there. And then obviously for the group. So we made a call back in December of 2020 that the UAE or the United Arab Emirates was going to become a big problem, because if you remember, they they quote unquote cheated. Uh, Saudi Arabia called them out. They said, hey, guys, you can't do that. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. But when you look at Russia, Iraq, Nigeria, everybody's cheated. It's just there's no, they, you know, essentially they just wag the finger, try to embarrass you. And as we know about Russia, the Russians can't be embarrassed. They don't care. Say whatever you want. Uh, Iraq and Nigeria have a balance sheet problem. So say whatever you will. They're just going to do what they need to do. So when you look at the UAE, they had something to lose because they're the biggest. I mean, obviously with um, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, they were a big part of that. They were there with um, Saudi Arabia when we look at the uh, fight in Yemen. So this is a, a big political issue, not just a oil and gas issue. So when you look at what happened, you know, they, they decided to use the baseline when the OPEC cuts were agreed upon in April of 2018. And when you look at what that was, Russia and Saudi Arabia were actually increasing production where the UAE was bringing pr production down. So the baseline that they agreed to uh, for the UAE was at 3.1 million barrels a day, not their normal 3.8. So their whole thing is, look, it's unfair. We've had to cut more on a percentage basis than anyone else. So you need to restrike us at a baseline that makes sense, essentially admitting that they made a bad deal. They're already exporting a, about 150,000 barrels above their target. And we always think of exports as kind of a better baseline to figure out how does that impact the market. 
and instead the UAE, the UAE saying, look, we're not going to come to an agreement unless we can normalize our uh, our baseline. And Saudi Arabia and Russia are like, no, that, that's this, this, this can't happen. We need to do this in a controlled fashion. And the UAE is essentially saying we, it can still be a controlled fashion, but we're not extending the deal because the deal was supposed to expire in April. They wanted to push it to December. The UAE, Mexico said, absolutely not. It's going to end in April. And then on the baseline side, the UAE wants to increase. And it's not that they're going to produce 3.8. They want the cuts to be based off of 3.8. So when they walk back the cuts, it's not from 3.1 to 2.7. It's at 3.8 to about 3.3, uh, you 3.4. Know, 3 ben? So you're muted. Go ahead. No, uh, uh, Mark, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a really interesting context there. So I'm I'm curious, you know, from that, I mean, do you, what's the signal? What's the takeaway from from the suspension of the meeting? I mean, is this sort of just SOP and we're going to kick the can because we don't want to get to the table, or do you think that this is somewhat maybe more nefarious or aggressive in, in, in the sense of sort you know sort of a signal that that you know th those parties that you're talking about are going to you know be more self-serving in their interests here in the in the interim until they can get back to the table whenever they reset the meeting. I, I think it's a mixture of both and and I think you bring up a good point with the self-serving side because when you look at the UAE They've been investing on oil um, expansion. They've been investing in their fields. They've been looking to expand production. And when you look at what they've decided, so typically the Middle East has what's called a destination clause, which just means that the company that buys it, it has to enter that, that company and their holdings. So if, 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 if Saudi Arabia were to sell it to Exxon, it's going to Exxon and it's going to Houston. It's not going to Exxon and then being sold to Shell and then being sold to CNOC and then ending up somewhere in uh, in the southeast China. So when you look at destination clauses, this is good because typically they won't have uh, different cargoes competing against each other. Now, the UAE launched the Murbane Futures because they wanted to be the benchmark and they wrote and they got rid of destination clauses, which just said, hey, guys, we're going to work. If you buy these futures, we're going to settle these in the physical. And then you can take them wherever you want. And you can resell them the moment they push off. And this was a big break that we were talking about because we thought this was a, a, a bigger shakeup than what the market was actually uh, coming back to. So then you look at politics. The Yemen war was expensive. The UAE was looking to exit it uh, or come to some sort of an agreement way before Saudi Arabia was. And there was also that pushback in the Saudi, actually Saudi Arabia and the UAE, some of their... Uh, individuals within that or the uh, some of the the groups within Yemen were actually fighting each other and not against the Houthis. So there was also that weird thing that was dy dynamic that the market kind of forgot about because it was in 2020 and everybody wanted to just purge 2020 from their minds. But there is a lot on a political sense. And then when you look at the UAE, they're like, look, we've we've taken the biggest hit. Everyone's balance sheets are stressed. We know that now we actually have the opportunity to make it back. The price is, is convenient, so why are we going to sit back and wait? Yeah, so let's talk about that that benchmark thing because I, I remember the story coming out last year, and there was a, a little bit of debate about it. It's like it, it kind of died off, and so it's, it's funny to hear that that's coming back into the discussion at this point because, um, uh, yeah, I, it, it, it didn't feel like it got the coverage it deserved. Right, 
And it's the grade too, because if you think about you know where we are in in crude quality and the kind of crude that is being demanded, I you know when you look at what they're putting out into the into the ocean, I mean this is something that is going to be demanded by Asia. When you look at the Dubai spreads versus Brent versus WTI versus West Africa, you know they they've essentially just been flooding the market with additional barrels, which has pushed the Dubai benchmark lower. Which just means that you're if if you're in Asia, India, China, you're going to have more of a propensity to purchase from Dubai and things off of the Dubai benchmark versus West Africa, which is Angola, Nigeria, which we've seen those cargoes struggle. When we look at Brent and how that those spreads are going down, and then in WTI where we've actually had the reverse. So there's there's a big issue because when you when you asked about why I think there's some concerns going forward on crude price. Well, you just have to look at the physical market. You know, we everyone's talking about spreads now because guys are getting good with spreads. But when you look at the actual physical spot market and the future spot market, because this is an important component, you can actually see that they're being left on the uh, left on the on the water, and you, we keep having deferrals, especially out of Angola and Nigeria, and that it's just showing some weakness on very specific grades, especially ones that are. You know, it can essentially go into anything which we like to call the Goldilocks crude. Let's talk about China for a second. Um, China is um, was buying a lot of oil. Uh, Q3, Q4, I think. I think last year slowed yeah. down Q1. Um, that helped keep the prices up. Some people speculated that when that slowed down, the prices might drop. Um, you know, there's always talk in the U.S. about you know, what to do about China. And one of the things that we should say is, is sell our oil, sell our oil. Uh, what's going on with China buying oil? Are they, are they still buying as much oil? Have they slowed down? Are they are they putting the oil that they bought last year back into the market? Uh, what's your read on, on on that situation? So they have slowed down in a uh, in a pretty sizable way. Uh, and when you look at uh, what does that mean? So they there's <laughs> it's China. So let's just say that the numbers are a bit fuzzy coming out. But there's an estimate that there's about 1.3 billion barrels of storage available within the uh, within China. As we came into January, they had a little over a mil, uh, one, a little over a billion. It was about a 1.017 billion. And before pre-COVID and pre-COVID times, you know, the before times, they had about 860 million, and they're currently sitting about 974. So they're still well over where they were. And they're trying to work some of that off. But now this gets complicated because they've also uh, sanctioned the teapots, which are just the independent refiners for lying, not doing what they're supposed to do. So they've actually cut their import quota by 35%. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to see their crude imports decline by 35% because the SOEs or the state-owned facilities, they're coming back into operation. And this just paves the way for them to make up for what the independents aren't doing. Now, on the other side, they've also uh, increased the levies on what's called, you know, short cycle um, uh, oil or semi-refined oil that is, that can no longer come in, or at least it's not economic to come into the country, which is going to impact South Korea, Japan, um, Singapore, and then Malaysia at a, at a smaller way, just in terms of the, the way crude is going to shift. So they're really coming after some of this oversupply and are trying to readjust by protecting the SOEs and impacting the private side and the independent refiners to make way because there is still another about 1.2 million barrels a day of throughput slated to come on over the next two years that are state-owned. 
So, Mark, I'm curious, um, sort of when you couple what China did last year in, in uh, the ramp up of, of buying up crude, you know, either from a market arbitrage perspective or, or simply just, you know, to, to bank the resource. And now in 2021, you've seen them, to your point, throttle back on, on the crude buying, but really press the throttle down on soybeans, wheat, corn, some of these other commodities. I think it's sort of the same story but just a different resource to a degree i'm curious if you have any comment on sort of the the bifurcation between those two because you know as we continue you know domestically and globally to read about droughts and, and food shortages you know, if china is is going to continue to uh, be a major uh, buyer in those soybean and wheat markets i think you're sort of seeing a similar trajectory do you, do you agree with that pathway and any comment there Sure. So when you look at China, China has about 12% of the world's arable land, but 22% of the world's population. They've had a yield that peaked in about 2014. And if you look at the purchases, you know, they went after and bought Monsanto. They have tried to come up with deals to, to create their own seeds and their own, um, their own uh, fertilizers. The problem is they've, they've essentially run, run uh, to the, to the fullest of their extent based on where people live, because when you look at when you look at there, there's it's called the 12 inch line, and the 12 inch line is typically you need more than 12 inches to have arable land. And when you look at the country, a lot of the uh, as you go east and look at the coast, that's where those 12 inches uh, uh, exist. But the problem is, about 80 percent of their population also lives there. So you're looking at where a lot of the arable land exists mixed with the population. So they've already had an issue when you look at the uh, farmland. Now, taking to what you've talked about, last year they started to have these big issues where they had these pockets or these micro droughts, which just essentially moved out all around. And then you had these massive floods that created the Yangtze River Basin essentially getting decimated, killing about 98% of livestock and almost 100% of grains that utilize that basin. So they came into this year with a massive shortfall. You know, then they also had army worm, which destroyed some of their uh, some of their corn crops. And then we obviously know about swine flu and bird flu, which have decimated a lot a large part of their livestock. So they're coming into this into this market very short. Now you talked about those droughts. They've essentially through 2008 to about 2018, they were very active in Brazil. They they brought them into the Belt and Road Initiative. They built out roads, they built out ports, they tried to increase the, uh, the efficiency because Brazil actually loses a lot of its uh, grains to, to rot on, the, on its way to port. So now what do you have? You have massive droughts in Brazil, which are impacting yield, but it's also impacting the logistics because as you, as you don't have water, the rivers fall, and then as the rivers fall, then you can't put as much on, and that becomes a much bigger issue. So all of this is shifting them into the U.S. and relying on the U.S. on a greater uh, on a greater scale, and just because of how long this takes to to uh, to replenish, they're essentially beholden to the broader market, and they haven't been able to uh, to catch up. And and especially if you, if if you look at G, hundred years of the CCP, we've eradicated um, the poor. We've 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 essentially pulled pulled everyone out of um, the. Uh, you know, the dregs of society in terms of giving them a living wage, giving them a livable uh, capacity. Now, that's almost near impossible to uh, to say unless you can feed these individuals, which is why there's a big reason to continue to do that.
Okay, so let's bring this all back to where we started, which was the frack spread and the textile and gas industry. How do all these things impact the textile and gas industry moving forward? There's a lot of complex topics that you spend a lot of time following, and we want to make sure we plug that after this comment here. But but what should we be thinking right here as we're you know, July 5th, 2021? Um, how do we feel about the industry, the, the strength of the industry? Obviously, we have internal pressures with capital, the ability to raise money, um, the ESG stuff. But you have these external factors that have nothing to do with us. Um, uh, should do we feel like we're in a good spot right now? Are you concerned about the oil and, the oil and gas industry? And for those who are listening, um, you know, how should they make their plans as they move forward through 2021? Should they be a little bit more cautious? Should they try to go all in? Um, what are your thoughts? So from a uh, from the producer side, I would say that you know, right now it's a good place to start laying around some puts, uh, just because you know, we we've seen a very strong rally. You know, we we have the curve has shifted up along with it, so you can hedge well into 2023 at a very profitable number. Uh, when you look at the U.S. in general, I'm I'm actually more bullish on the liquid side. So when we look at condensate or naphtha and NGLs, that's where I've always seen a large growth. And, and as you talk about with ESG. ESG needs a lot of plastic, and the U.S. produces a lot of products that is very good at making plastic. So when we look at oil versus the liquids, I actually think the liquids is going to continue to see a lot of uh, a, a lot of favor. And then when you look at thermal coal pricing, and you know coming back to China, when you talk about those droughts, well, the droughts are also hitting. When you think about well, power gen, how much of that is is hydro, and then what is the hydro backed up with? And if you can't use hydro where you're going to use thermal coal to, um, and then if you can't use thermal coal or if you don't want to, it's LNG. And what does the U.S. have a lot of? We have a lot of natural gas. So there's a lot of reasons why we're going to continue to see some strength. And when we when we think about the U.S. producing at 13.5 million, 13.2 million, we we killed our internal market and our external market. So, but at 11.5, 11.7, it's a very comfortable market where the U.S. can not only just use a lot of uh, some of that light sweet crude to, to make product uh, at the refiner side, because they've also been building out the lighter end of refining, but it also opens up our ability to export more into uh, Asia and Europe. And now, even though COVID is, is behind us, or at least we like to, to hope so in the US, it isn't in other places. And when you think about that, that means refiners just aren't operating. If they're not operating, there's a, a shortage of naphtha, there's a shortage of LPG, which allows the US to backfill that. So there's a lot of reasons why we're gonna see some stickiness in terms of activity in the US on not only just the oil and liquid side, but also on the natural gas side. Okay, Mark, uh, tell folks where they can find you. You mentioned you have some shows. Um, obviously you come on this fantastic podcast inside the war room and give out this stunning, stunning insights with the, with the host there. You and him just are just two pieces of pot. No, but no, seriously, you have the EIA show, you have, uh, the, the, the economy, economy show, show, geopolitics, the and, geopolitics then the show. Show. and that's on the primary vision YouTube channel. Yeah. The primary, uh, primary vision network is the name PVN and we, the EIA show goes live on uh, Wednesday, uh, econ and geopolitical show goes on on Thursday and then the frack spread show would where we give these numbers and then some of this data that we've talked about on Friday. And then we do a quick recap on the uh, on the macroeconomic backdrop just to take you into the weekend with some uh, some, some nice nuggets of information to be interesting at uh, at parties. OK. And then you also have um, reports and stuff. I think you guys sell work. People contact you for that information. 
Yeah, you can uh, pvmic.com. Uh, we, we put out uh, about four reports a year looking at the supply side. So as we talked about with the frac spread, a frac spread count has horsepower. So we look at all the horsepower broken down by basin, by, um, by producer, just to look at who's operating, who's operating where, and then we always link that. So we have every spread connected to the OFS that owns it and the EMP that is operating it or who it's operating for and where what basin. So we provide a broad backdrop and then we give you how much horsepower is available, which just means how many spreads are there. You know, are they cold stacked, warm stacked? What's the likelihood they're going to come back? And then we try to uh, layer that in with what is happening in, in the geopolitical world because uh, we, we are exporting right now about 3.2, 3.3 million barrels a day of crude. And if for those who don't think that's important, well, just wait, just imagine if that stopped and 3.3 million barrels gets pushed back into our storage per uh, per day, per week. Okay. Um, we will link to all that in the show notes. Mark, appreciate you coming in on this holiday Monday. You are a red-blooded, true blue American, even though you are a Yankee, but it's okay. We, well, we can't. I tried. I, tried. I, 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 had my, <laughs> I had my colors on. <laughs> you did. Well, enjoy the rest of your holiday, brother, and we'll talk soon. You too, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, buddy. All right, Mr. Samuels, let's go ahead and land this bird. Or Oh, oh, if you reach out to Mark, be sure to tell him that you appreciate him coming on this podcast. Always let the guests know. It's uh, good to let the folks know that you heard him here. Uh, Mr. Samuels, any final comments before we get out of here today? No, you're in rare form today. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it, it's a different Ryan than I usually get on, on the other couple shows. So, uh, you know, this was this was good. I appreciate you having me on. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I made you look good. Yeah, hopefully. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out all of stuff Ben's got going on. He is uh, one of the listeners on our other podcast, dubbed him the Oracle of Midland. So be sure to check him out, uh, Source Rock Midstream, and all they have going on. And until next time, keep climbing.